Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Monday, March the 22nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Over the last while on this podcast, we have considered some of the broader issues underlying the contemporary political landscape in Ireland. We have discussed the founding of Northern Ireland and the consequences of partition. We've looked at the views and the sense of identity of the unionist community. And we've also touched on the history and legacy of imperialism and colonialism. It is possibly a bit strange then that we haven't talked at all about the single most significant institution in the history of modern Ireland, an organisation which has had more influence than any other, both on individual lives and on how the independent Irish state made its laws and which effectively had control over key parts of that state, including education and health. I refer, of course, to the Catholic Church. And very fortuitously, my Irish Times colleague, our Berlin correspondent Derek Scally, has just published a book on the subject. It's called The Best Catholics in the World. And Derek's here to discuss it today. Derek, why would the Berlin correspondent write a book about the Catholic Church in Ireland? I think the reason I did it is 20 years in Germany definitely changes somebody. And I think Germany, I think we can all agree, has the most one of the most horrendous histories of the 20th century, but they've somehow managed to turn that around. And they're now sort of the gold standard in what do you do with a horrendous history? Do you hide it? Do you bury it? Some countries in the world have done that. Um, uh, Germany decided, you know, after a period of silence after the Second World War, they decided, no, let's put our disgrace on display. Let's learn from this. Let's make it an obligation. One of the terms and conditions of being German is that you will always understand the the possibilities within us for horror and um, the circumstances which made that horror a reality for millions of people in the 20th century. Um, because you may not have been there, but, you know, this is part of your inheritance. And living in Germany, you really do sense that everywhere. It, 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 it's, it's almost a shadow over daily life. Sometimes it can be quite oppressive. Sometimes it can be quite liberating. So as somebody living here for 20 years, um, obviously I started to think about Irish history, a very different history and in no way comparable to German history. But how do you deal with it after the fact? And that was something that's always intrigued me. And uh, a visit to an East German museum, a museum of East German history, where they put an awful lot of East Germany on the display, another episode of German history. I saw a picture and it was a, a huge um, enlargement of a, of a, it was probably a May 1st May Day parade, which was a huge issue in East Germany. And it was um, people on display with sort of polyester shirts, um, the Scouts equivalent. They had big pictures of Marx and Engels. I just saw an awful lot of sweaty polyester and I sort of said, oh, how could they be so naive? And then I sort of my eyes squinted. And I looked again. And I said, that could be the visit of Pope John Paul to Ireland. And suddenly I started thinking about mass groups, mass gatherings, the pressure to be there, the pressure um, to justify um, your decision to stay away, just the group think, the done thing. And suddenly I realized that um, what was possible in East Germany is possible anywhere. If you feel you are in a state where the cost of not participating is too high, you will participate. But afterwards, what happens then? How do you explain to yourself, well, yeah, I was in the Phoenix Park. I didn't really have any interest in the Catholic Church, but I was there. Yeah, I was at Mass on Sunday. Yeah, there was a priest in our parish. I, 
I kind of knew, but we didn't ask. And that was my story. I suddenly realized I was thinking about myself. And um, so uh, living in Germany just, I think, sharpened my gaze from my own past. And, uh, and I realized that where there should be a discussion about our past, there was really just silence. So I said, well, I might as well break the silence. I went looking for a book about this, our Catholic past. I didn't find it. And I just decided, well, I guess I'm going to have to write it myself. You, you say at one point in the book that there are, there's not one story of, of the Catholic Church in Ireland. There's four million stories or however many individuals are, are in the country. And you do start with your own personal story growing up in Edenmore, which is a suburb of Dublin. One I used not know, but because I'm restricted to five kilometres these days, it's within my five kilometres. So I feel like I know it a lot better now these days. But maybe you could describe what Edenmore was like when you were growing up and going to school there in the 1980s and how it's changed since. Yeah, Edenmore is, uh, I grew up sort of between Rohini, which is sort of one of the leafier suburbs on Dublin's north side on the dark line out of the city, and Edenmore, which is a much later addition from the 1960s, built by Dublin Corporation Social Housing. So we were sort of in between these two worlds, and I went to school in Edenmore. Uh, to a great school, St. Malachy's. It was a Catholic boys' national school. Across the road was the girls' national school. There was the pub and there was the church. And um, this just was created in the 1960s. This was part of uh, John Charles McQuaid, Archbishop of Dublin at the time, this massive push building these massive churches. You can still see them in some parts of Dublin, in Donnycarney, in, in Glasnevin, Ballymond, Finglas. Even more was slightly smaller, but it was definitely a part of placing the church at the centre, even of these modern new developments because the church was the center of everything and um, the houses were built the school was built we went along we all just figured this is you know we all just have one childhood so you think this is perfectly normal jump forward to the mid 90s uh, I'm an altar boy like my two brothers and I have no problem with that I find mass interesting it's, it's not always interesting but sometimes there's a little a little spark of interest particularly from one priest Paul McGuinness he seems to have a uh, disavowed the sort of the pastoral side of Irish Catholicism, which is very good for funerals, but he's more sort of a theologian. And uh, he's given me all this high-end Catholic stuff, and I found that very interesting. And then I find it just slightly conflicting that why is this car filled with children? Why are there children in his house? There's always children in his house. Every time I ring the doorbell looking for something, a child answers the door. And um, in hindsight, I said, it's a bit like that 1980s sitcom, Different Strokes, you know, older man adopts children with hilarious results. But I don't remember laughing at the time with Paul McGuinness. He was a very nervous man. Uh, he was a very awkward man, uh, a very secretive man. And it turned out later that um, he was also uh, a paedophile, a child abuser. He was he disappeared from our parish in 1997 because uh, Mary Collins, who some of your listeners might know is perhaps one of the most elegant, eloquent um, campaigners uh, against clerical sexual abuse. He abused her in 1960 when she was in hospital and it took her until the mid-90s to actually pluck up the courage um, and get herself together and she went to the guards, complained and suddenly Paul McGuinness disappeared from our parish. So, um, and the silence began. He disappeared. Nobody's quite sure what happened. Eventually the story came out on the front of the of the evening papers and um, as soon as he was gone, the silence began, the lid went on it. And I've always wondered, what did people know? What do people think now? 
And I realized if I was going to start the journey, if I was going to be honest about this process, let me go back to what I know. So I went back to eat more and I talked to people and as you'd expect, a very conflicted view and everyone had a little piece of the puzzle, but nobody really felt free or at liberty to speak in public about their piece of the puzzle. There was still a sense of, I think, of shame and of anger but mostly silence. I think the book, if there was one word to describe what I was trying to tackle in this book, it's silence. Um, we, we're great in Ireland at talking, but often we don't want to say anything, particularly not about ourselves. And I think this period, uh, the silence is absolutely staggering. And um, in Eden more, I just said, well, if I approach people with empathy and just say, well, what did you see? Could I create an atmosphere where people feel that there's no huge social cost to talking anymore and enough time has passed? And and I, I won't say we got the full picture, but I finally got a sense of the pressures people faced, the power the parish priest would have, um, and the, the sense of impunity a, a smart uh, paedophile could have if he acted in a certain way. Uh, and also the just lingering scars and just the complexity. Anyone who's lived in an Irish parish will recognise St. Monica's. It's a very particular place built in the 60s by Dublin Corporation. But um, Eden Moore and St. Monica's is really universal. And anyone in Ireland who reads this book will recognize the dynamics. Um, and it's striking when you ask people who are there, so many of them are now delighted to talk because and just about enough time has passed um, and they all feel a need to talk. And I think everyone feels this feeling. I know I saw something. I'm not sure what it was or I didn't know. But now I wonder, and it's a burden for many people. And I think sometimes just, just speaking it out um, can be enough for most people. Um, but putting the pieces of the puzzle together was certainly very interesting. I mean, it's good to hear that that people are now starting to feel that, that they, they can talk and they can uh, get the benefits of that. But a lot of the book is around these grey areas of collusion um turning a blind eye, being in that liminal space between knowing something and not knowing something. And reading it, I think of the kind of some of the reaction that um, to the recent uh, Mother and Baby Homes report, where there was quite a visceral and angry reaction to some of the some of the suggestions in that in that report. And they are contestable because this is contested stuff about how much free will was involved by the decision of some people to go into those institutions and how much free will they had to stay in them inside. And this is kind of stuff that I completely understand can make people angry. But it, it we're never going to really get anywhere with this, are we, until we sort of open up and accept that for many, many, many Irish people, probably the majority of them, um, they were part of the problem. Yes, I mean, I realized only when I began this journey how little I actually understood about Catholic Ireland. We seem to think because we've had Catholicism since the days of St. Patrick that we're somehow the origin of the species. But I mean, Irish Catholicism is Roman Catholicism, but it's very much colored by its place and time. And I think a lot of us talk today about Catholicism. We just think, well, we must know it because we've been exposed to it for so long or many of us were exposed to it for so long. But it's not the case. I went back and I realized I was shocked at how little I actually understood. I was shocked about how much my understanding of Catholicism or Irish national identity was really just a product of 19th century propaganda. So we're not, without having that information, I realized I wouldn't have been a very informed part, participant in current discussions. So I think it's up to everyone to sort of inform themselves first. Where was this coming from? 
And particularly people of my generation, I was born in 77 or anyone who's younger than me, it's the easiest thing in the world to condemn people and say, how dare you? What were you thinking? And so on. But I know from older Germans here that, you know, be very careful what you accuse people of, because if you were in those circumstances, are you sure you know how you would react? Are you sure you'd be as brave as you claim to be now on Twitter? And the, the reaction after the Mother and Baby Homes report was extremely understandable. And I, I sympathize entirely with people who felt outraged that the state was somehow, in their view, sort of shifting the blame or spreading the blame. We were all in this. And, and there were times, I'll be honest with you, in the project when I was looking at some horrific things and I couldn't help but feel angry towards older generations who allowed this to happen or pretended they didn't know something. Um, and there were times when I just was so angry at the Catholic Church as an institution, I said, just these weak uh, conformist people. But eventually I realised that perhaps the greatest provocation about these people and their reaction in the past to problems the provocation for me was not that it was so alien to me, but it was so familiar to me. And somehow, despite the difference, despite the gulf of time, there was something very essentially Irish about how problems were dealt with. They were hidden. They were put away. Um, I met many people on the journey who felt their, their, their narrative of Ireland, of Catholic Ireland now, is it's a bit like that sci-fi series V, this massive spaceship arrived from the planet Vatican. There were people on board who looked like us and talked like us. But spoiler alert, they were actually, you know, lizards who ate children or ate rats. And they came to Ireland and they abused our children. They messed with our minds. We beat them back onto the spaceship and they've flown away. That honestly is what some people in Ireland think these days. And I always say to them, can we just agree that everyone in Ireland who is in the Catholic Church and everyone in the state, we talk about the church, we talk about the state. I just like to point out they're all Irish passport holders. They all went through the same school system as ourselves. They went through, um, they went through, uh, of course, seminaries and convents and a very interesting and perhaps damaging experience. But essentially, they're Irish people. And if we are othering them now, we are performing the same sleight of hand that people did back in the 1950s and 60s with single mothers and so-called Magdalene women. Let's other them, stick them away out of sight, and we can condemn them as something that has nothing to do with us. And then we've solved the problem. And of course, we've solved nothing. So to, to move to try and move on, to draw, draw a line under the past by othering supposed perpetrators. Um, we're just performing the same trick again, this unconscious, um, these unconscious skills, if you want to put it that way, we've picked up from the Catholic uh, past we want to distance ourselves from. One of the things that makes the book so good, and I should say the book, it re I mean, really is is very good and explores this subject in a way that that I've never that I've never seen before. Is it takes things which with which I thought I was relatively familiar, and it makes them new because of the perspective you're coming at them. And one of those things is a is a um, is a very significant figure in this story, which is the former cardinal Sean Brady, and he's both very much of that world which you describe and you locate him in in uh, a part of rural Ireland with which you're familiar and how he became a priest um, and rose to the this position of, of great power um, and then how it all comes essentially crumbling down around him because the revelation of the part he played as a as a relatively junior curate in the essentially the cover-up of the abuser father father Brendan Smith but you have this series of meetings with them and one with him, and one of the things that I thought was so good is they're 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 awkward, they're spiky, they're uncomfortable, and there's there's and they're they're also sympathetic, I think, in some ways. But there's one key moment I think where um, you go off go on a tangent in your discussions, and you ask him about power, and you say in the book 
that his eyes sort of he's interested all of a sudden because he has had these conversations with you, which he's clearly had with hundreds of other people over the, over the last decade or so about the history of the church and institutional abuse and that. But this question of power is something that nobody maybe or has, has really brought up with him previously. So this question of the church as an instrument of power seems to me, along with what you've just been talking about, seems to be at the core of what we're talking about here, isn't it? Because the church is, it was so rooted in Irish society and for various historical reasons was essentially indistinguishable from the state in much of what it, what it did, that it, that it was a huge repository of power. And when there's that much power, people will behave in certain ways, won't they? They may, uh, they may um, justify it with a theology or with a different sort of an explanation. But raw power itself has its own kind of a dynamic, doesn't it? Yes, but I mean, you've said there the church was deeply rooted in Irish society. The church was Irish society. Sean Brady was Irish society. Um, uh, the state is Irish society. This we, we have this sort of triangular, this sort of unholy trinity with church, state and people. I, I mean, I, I find this really difficult. I mean, does the state, the state is not us. You know, the church is not us. It's almost like we still got this colonial idea of Dublin Castle up there and us down here. And um, it almost betrays a sort of a sense we're not quite sort of an impotence towards our own destiny, that some other force out there is responsible for what we do or what we say or what we rebel against. Um, with Sean Brady, I found it, it was a fascinating time. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was sympathetic to him. I tried to be empathetic. I just took the idea that um, he didn't start out to end up this way. He's probably... It's argued. It's arguable. He's probably the most hated cleric in Ireland, and he will die that way. He knows that. He was a young man who was asked to sit in on an interview with a boy who was abused by Brendan Smith, as you said, one of the most uh, notorious paedophiles in Ireland. He wrote up uh, Brady wrote up a report and said he believed the boy, handed it to his boss, uh, the bishop uh, in Cavan and promptly forgot about it and um, claimed he forgot about it all the years. He claimed he didn't think of it when he was appointed um, coadjutor Archbishop of Armagh. He was on in line to become the head of the Catholic Church. He claimed he didn't think about it when he was a, when Brendan Smith's face appeared in the front of newspapers. Uh, and in one way, I believe him because I think his training is such a way that he believes that the church is the ultimate good. Therefore, it isn't capable of anything less than good, which may sound naive to people. But I think when you've been through the, the training you've been through, it's understandable. His brain would think this way. I'm not justifying it for a moment. But he simply could not understand that being loyal to an institution like the church could mean betraying a child's welfare. He even says it to me in, in, in the book that it just didn't it just didn't occur to him that this was damaging to him and um which is staggering really by today's standards but i mean when i was researching the book i noticed that there are at least 30 people who uh, knew of smith no one acted smith was sent around the world to at least four or five different parishes in australia he even got to fargo in north dakota none of these parishes wanted him but he was sent back uh, to Ireland, and Ireland tolerated him up until the 1990s. So there's something there that if we could only solve the Brendan Smith riddle, the terrible tragedy of Brendan Smith, um, if we if we could blame it on, Brent, on Sean Brady and lock him away, we would solve the problem. But it doesn't solve the problem because it doesn't explain it. And definitely Sean Brady is a key part of the problem and the power structure in which he operated and the power structure he knew how to rise through. He became the most senior, one of the most senior figures in the Catholic Church bar the Pope. You're a cardinal, you elect Pope. So 
Ike challenged him that the idea, he claimed he was just a simple country curate. I suggested, well, you studied canon law, you studied in Rome, and I think you knew there are several ways to rise up through the ranks. One is to be openly ambitious, and the other is to be a safe pair of hands. And I think the pattern of Sean Brady's career is he was a safe pair of hands. He could be trusted to do the job. He could be trusted to keep his mouth shut. He could be trusted to honestly not think about it, put it away in a part of his brain. Uh, but again, as I said before, I think he's become sort of a provocation, sort of a lightning rod for our anger because he acted the way so many Irish people did in an extreme way, in a position of power that most Irish people didn't have. But essentially, like the other 30 people that knew about Brendan Smith and the people in the parishes where Brendan Smith was operating, it was not a secret that Brendan Smith was a certain way. And the idea, the idea just was if you ignore it, if you keep your children away, uh, it'll be fine. And that is unacceptable now, but rather than confront ourselves with what we knew about these type of abusing priests, it's quite easy to tackle Brennan, Sean Brady and, um, and accuse him of being uh, an unacceptable person who must be put beyond the pale. But I would argue he acted the way Irish people acted. He didn't use the power he had, but he certainly acted the way he had, um, the way other people would have acted. I mean, listening to you talking about Brendan Smith being shunted around to different countries, all of which were sort of outposts, I suppose, of Irish Catholicism in countries like Australia and the and the United States, it, it does beg the question of how much particularity or exceptionalism there is in this Irish variant of Catholicism and uh, where it went so terribly wrong in this instance, which we're, which we're talking about here. And I do wonder, you know, sometimes when, when I'm looking at these stories over the last 20 years or so, when they're absolutely horrendous, um, but I do wonder sometimes, are we measuring them against the reality of what the outside world was like as well? Correctly, it was a horrendous world in many ways, and there was great brutality against all kinds of, you know, marginalised um, minorities and people of other sorts, and there was great cruelty to women and to, uh, and to and to other people. So I do wonder sometimes, you know, there's an Irish tendency to exceptionalism and navel-gazing that we're either the best at something or the worst in something. Is there an element of that in the way that we think about this particular phenomenon? Um, I think um, Ireland is, we're very good at identifying things where we are virtuous or where we are a victim. Um, as soon as we get into ambivalent territory, ambivalent history, um, as soon as we slip away from victim down what I call the continuum of knowing, we've got, let's say, clerical sexual abuse survivors on one end of the the continuum, one extreme, and go all the way to the other side and you've got people like Brendan Smith abusers. And somewhere between those two extremes, we all are this four million Catholic Ireland's that we all personally carry with us. And locating yourself on that is a challenge, reflecting on what you've seen, what you saw, what you knew, what you didn't want to know. Um, so it's, 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 it's true to say other countries have had terrible patterns, but uh, patterns of abuse and power abuses and so on. Um, but we're not looking at anything that makes us look bad. We're not interested in looking at anything that makes us look bad. That's where I talk about this silence, um, that we we are almost carrying, um, I talk about an idea of holy victimhood in the book. We're carrying a legacy that Catholic Church gave us in the 19th century as a way of understanding our suffering and a way of understanding our Irishness, which is we are the best Catholics in the world. We are suffering more than anyone. We're clinging to our faith. We're being oppressed and slaughtered by the British uh, and we're clinging to our faith and uh, a brighter tomorrow is looming. 
Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, the, the that is Catholic Church propaganda, which is true to a point, but it was also part of the, the Catholic Church establishing its power in the mid-19th century after the famine. Uh, and it's also not quite true because once we did get control of our own affairs, were we particularly Christian? Were we particularly Catholic? Uh, anyone who's locked up in an institution for absolutely no reason for most of their lives would dispute that. So once we get into, um, it's true, we we have a history like other countries, I would argue some countries like Poland have even more shocking histories at the hands of their neighbours, but we're not really interested in anything that doesn't have us as a victim. And I think we're finally at a point in our history where we're mature enough to actually look back and realise that somewhere in all of us there's a victim and a potential perpetrator, and where do we find ourselves there? And um, just a story, I mean, when I was on, I was heading to, there was an event in the uh, with uh, President uh, Michael D. Higgins in the Auris about the Magdalene women. They were locked away, many women, for hundreds of women, for really doing nothing. But they were they were a provocation to Irish society at the time. They didn't meet the moral standards at the time. Maybe they had a baby out of wedlock. Maybe they were just considered too sexy. They were locked away. So the President um, hosted them for an afternoon for a garden party. But on the way there, I was chatting to a taxi driver and he asked me where I was going and I explained it to him and he said... Yeah, in the 1980s, I was, um, I had a contract, we, our taxi firm had a contract to drive women from a, a home, it was a mother and baby home on the Navin Road to St. James's Hospital and back. And he said, looking back, I didn't really know what they were, who they were, what they wanted. And he said, I often wonder, could I have done more? Did any of them need help? Why didn't I feel able to talk to them or offer to assist? I, I really felt like abandoning the garden party and sitting in the car and listening to his story. And it really broke my heart to get out of the taxi because I said, there's millions of people in Ireland like that taxi driver. He's still wondering why he acted a certain way and could he have acted a different way? Perhaps not, but he, he doesn't have anywhere to go with that story, with that conflict, with that ambivalence. So while it is true that other countries have these stories, other countries, for instance, Germany, where I live, they have institutions, they have structures, they have procedures in place to actually help individuals look back at their own story, maybe just with themselves, or maybe after they've talked to themselves, they might talk to other people. Ireland, we, we've spent the last 20, 30 years outsourcing this to lawyers, which was essential, I think, to go through the files and the, the legal process, particularly given the statute of limitations, it was essential to do that work. But I think we've reached the end of the road there. And the question now is, Does do the great 80% of people in the centre of Irish society, the silent people who maybe have never spoken before, they weren't abused, they weren't an abuser, and the 80 to 90%, what do we want now? Do we want this all to go away? Or do we want to look at ourselves in the mirror and realise the legal approach to this has ended? The, the moral, the personal, the emotional, empathetic approach to our past has to begin, and it has to begin with us. Um, I mean, the mention of the taxi driver there, you know, of that happening in the 1980s. And, and I think some people now are, are shocked and surprised that that type of thing was still happening in the 1980s. And I was just thinking as well, you're thinking of you being being an altar boy in Eden Moore. At the same time as you were there down the road, Roddy, Roddy Doyle would have been writing the Barrytown trilogy set in a fictionalised Kilbarrick. And, and very deliberately painting a picture of a Dublin working class suburb 
where priests didn't figure at all and religion didn't figure at all. And that wasn't necessarily a hyper-realistic version of what Kilbaric was like in the 1980s, but it was a kind of a, it was a depiction of the way in which Irish society was definitely changing at that time. And you write about the, the kind of religious textbooks that you had in school and they were post-Vatican II ones. They were trying to be in a pretty sad way, probably hip and trendy for the, uh, for, for, for teenagers. So there was a sense and there obviously a lot of other things going on in the 80s, including a kind of a, you know, a backlash in the form of, of the abortion referendum. But there was a sense that the Catholic Church was beginning to be beleaguered. And is there some element in this that uh, that actually what happened, the explosion of the revelations in the 90s, really only accelerated a process, which was bound to happen anyway, which was Ireland was going to join the prosperous, consumerist, capitalist societies of Western Europe in a kind of a, in a sort of post-Christian uh, society? Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it, uh, the question really is not why it lasted, Catholic Ireland, but why it lasted so long. And I think if you step away from it, it's because people didn't really feel they had any power or agency to make it different. And I think the, um, the, the abuse revelations just made people realize that they perhaps had unwittingly or unknowingly or unjustifiably put these clerics up on a pedestal. Maybe they, you could say these clerics built their own pedestal and hopped on top of it. But I think there's definitely a two-way thing there. And there was a need to have these people on a particular pedestal for certain generations. They will still look up to the priests as God's holy anointed. But then the next generation, the Roddy Doyle generation, I think they had really no time for this. Roddy Doyle gave a great interview in Hot Press where he just described that time when he was writing that book. He just said, you just need to have to fight for your secular space. It's, you know, for somebody of my generation, we kind of, we got the last gasp of Irish Catholicism. But for somebody of Roddy Doyle's generation, they literally had to battle to keep the priests and the, the church out of everything because they just had a sense of entitlement that they should be in everything. So I can only imagine how suffocating it is for somebody of their generation. And for me to come along now, it might sound to them like alarm bells. I'm not really wishing any sort of Ireland back. I'm not wishing that kind of Irish Catholicism back. Um, at the very least, I think we need to talk about the interaction between church, state and people. I, I When I interviewed people, I I, I drew Venn diagrams because everyone was talking about church, state and people and society. And I just don't really think we've ever even agreed on what, can we please define our terms? And nobody I could, nobody I met actually drew the same diagram twice. I would draw, you know, church, state, people, overlapping circles. You know, was there complete overlap? Was there some overlap? Was there no overlap? And um, Justice Yvonne Murphy, um, Justice uh, Ryan, who did the Ryan Report, um, some abuse survivors I met, everyone had their own idea of how much or how little overlap there was. Um, some people said the church in Ireland was a subset of Irish society. Some people said the church existed completely separately to Irish society. Um, so if, after 30 years of talking, we're not actually sure what we're talking about. Um, it suggests to me that um, not even our religion books were much help. I mean, they were they were very much assuming that everyone had a, a spiritual need and that this was the best approach. Um, and they were trying to be more experiential. I think they were trying to appeal to people who didn't want to learn off a catechism, but they weren't really giving us anything at all. Um, they were assuming we were getting religion in church. They were assuming we were getting religion at home. Um, and it was just a dog's dinner, basically. I personally felt patronized. I know other people in class were bored. Um, personally, I like one of the most interesting things I ever did at school was the Reformation. I thought, oh my God, this is like we were doing the Lord of the Rings in English and we were doing the Reformation history. And I thought, well, 
the Reformation happened, it's far more interesting than Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's, it has everything. It's Game of Thrones, it's Sopranos, it's everything is in there. Um, and our religion class was just like a glass of lukewarm water by comparison. I, had a, I went back to my old school and um, Eugene Curran of Incension at St. Paul's in, in Rohini, he said, um, you know, my approach to teaching religion was I'd rather produce an informed atheist than a lazy Catholic. Um, but I think there's an awful lot of lazy Catholics. An old teacher told me, I think we're so ill-informed about Catholicism and religion aren't. I mean, most young people today don't even know if they're an atheist or an agnostic. So um, it was all falling apart. The wheels were coming off the car. The Ireland, Catholic Ireland that I knew in the 80s was running on fumes. So it had to collapse. And I think most people are relieved it has. But the question is, what now? And this book started actually with an article I wrote in the Irish Times where I said, we're a post-Catholic country adrift because we don't know what our values are and we're in denial about our past and our role in that past. So everyone over a certain age had a role in Catholic Ireland. Everyone under a certain age has, I would say, uh, uh, I would encourage them to try and understand it. And that's why I wrote the book, to try and make it accessible, this past to people, to try and make it fair uh, to all sides because we've got this sort of one side attacking the other and and to try and make it personal i think everyone likes to hear about other people but people in ireland still often are a little bit wary of talking about themselves so i decided to explain my story in the hope that other people will um will will associate with it will see something familiar and maybe start asking questions about themselves okay but let me just halt there for a minute and ask a question, which is kind of rooted in my own personal experience, which the book forces readers to do, which I think is one of the one of the good things about it. And I mean, my own personal experiences of not being ever really particularly involved with the Catholic Church, nominally Catholic at an early age, but no engagement with the church at all after early primary education, um, probably for reasons of of uh, gender and class privilege. I they they didn't come after me in any way from the middle class Dublin suburb, um really didn't affect my life you know um was aware on a political level that there were things that I thought were wrong with Ireland and that the Catholic Church had a pretty central role in that, those and that issues around reproductive rights and other rights you know needed to be addressed but really it didn't affect me directly um and. I probably felt for quite a long while in my adulthood that the Catholic Church was something that was just ebbing slowly away and we were moving on to this new, more secular society. And the only reason my thoughts began to change on that was become when I became a parent and I realised that actually the church in the form of these kind of successor organisations to the religious orders still does hold a pretty firm grip on the education system, particularly the primary education system. And that that is um, really not very satisfactory from my point of view, from a selfish point of view as a as a parent, but also that it kind of it reveals a fact that the structures are not just completely gaunt skeletal remains. There is still power there and there is still control being retained. And I know that lots of kind of um, practicing, believing Catholics are not very satisfied with the thing which I think you touched on there, which is that the country's full of people who discuss, who are nominally Catholic, but aren't actually Catholic at all. And there are bouncy castle Catholics for First Communion Day, but they forget about it completely afterwards. But just looking around me at the education system and also maybe to some extent the health system, thinking of some of the controversies about the relocation of the National Maternity Hospital, who owns the land on which it stands, is that one of the factors of Irish Catholicism is that unlike Catholic countries like Italy and France and Spain in the form of a civil war, there wasn't 
a radical anti-clerical opposition to the church, which set up alternative structures and which said the state should be separated from the church. And that because we haven't had those, we still have this intertwining between state and church. And that that's probably as bad for the church as it is for the state, if you really wanted to reinvent the Catholic Church as something that's meaningful in the 21st century. Yes, I think we we have a unique situation, a unique dilemma, a unique problem even. I mean, in the early decades, in the early years, the founding years of the, the Irish state, the Irish state believed didn't have money for hospitals, for schools, for social services. So in a very early pro- public-private partnership, it handed control uh, to the Catholic Church. It said, if you set up the hospitals, you can run it, you can impose your ethos, that's fine. And that, unfortunately to many people who are critical now, that suited most people at the time. And they were getting, it was like getting free motorways. You didn't have to pay a toll, but they might be, I don't know, tracking your data or something might be an equivalent today. Um, But back then, that was what people wanted. And people now are struggling to cope with that. What do you do? Do you, in, in some countries, it's funny, People have no faith or confidence in state-run schools or state-run hospitals. They just want to send their kids to Catholic Catholic schools or their mothers to Catholic hospitals. So the notion that the state is sort of superior in some countries, they would say, well, no, we've tried the state. Actually, let's go back to the church. That's just an aside. Um, But Ireland really hasn't really had this. We we have this inheritance, um, but I often sense in the debate a sense of impotence that I think a lot of people in Ireland don't, secretly don't actually believe they have any right to control this. It's it's being controlled. The church, the state is doing this. And I think that reflects sort of an inheritance. Uh, they don't question their roles as citizens. What do we actually want? What, are we, what do we feel we're entitled to? Maybe people in Ireland, I, I've been out of the country for 20 years, but I often sense many people think it's just fine as it is. And I always assume, well, I suppose if enough people felt it wasn't fine, things would change. But just about enough people think it's just grand the way it is. And I think many people unconsciously think, well, I got through that system, didn't do me a bit of harm. You know, I had great nuns, I had great priests, and maybe they did. So um, the notion that this is still unusual in, an, in an, a European or a Western context, it's true. Um, but it seems that enough Irish people seem to want to keep it this way. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would also question whether it's healthy for the Catholic Church. They've become effectively a service provider for days out. And um, it'll be interesting now after the pandemic when things reopen um, on whose terms and who's going. And it will definitely be a conscious choice to go to a religious service. And maybe, who knows, in the, in the pandemic, people will have had loss. People will have had crises. Um, maybe they will find, well, if I go back now on my own terms, they can't hurt me. They can't boss me around. Um, who knows? I mean, I, I, when I was writing the book, I was in Rome and I was reading a speech by the head of the Jesuits and he was talking about the stages of secularism. He said, I don't understand why people in the church fight secularism. It's just like gravity or the tide. It's just there. And he says it liberates us to do other things. The church is in decline anyway, numbers wise. We can't run all the schools and the hospitals. We don't have the people. So hand that over, liberate yourself, concentrate on your core mission. And then he said the stages of secularism, stage one is sort of anger. People turn away from religious institutions in, in, in on, they part on angry terms. The next generation comes along and it's apathy. I mean, people, 20-year-olds today, they just don't understand that they're not interested. And he said, usually what happens after stage two, apathy comes stage three, which is curiosity. And I'll be very interested to see if stage three kicks off in Ireland where people realize um, 
the church is an institution and my spiritual beliefs are something else. If I continue to believe I have to abandon my spiritual beliefs because I have no belief in this institution, I'm actually just swallowing the company line. I see many people in Germany and other countries, they say, there is no reason why I have to chain my spiritual beliefs to an institution I think is sinking, is lacking credibility or is criminal. So you liberate that and suddenly you have maybe a space, a mature space to explore, well, what spiritual beliefs do I have? Do I just wait until I'm sitting at a funeral? and completely overwhelmed by life and death? Or do I try and explore this as an adult? So it'll be interesting to see if that's possible in Ireland, because certainly my religious books didn't inform me about that. I met adults in Ireland who are going through this experience and they're going to courses because they say, well, I am curious about why has this survived 2000 years? What does it have to say on social justice? What does it have to say about my life? And when you separate the Catholic teachings or Christian teachings from the mediocrity of late stage Catholicism in Ireland, which I had, um, many people are saying, well, this is interesting. Um, so that's the curious phase. So it'll be interesting to see if I think many people in Ireland seem to think it's progress to become secular. But in countries like Germany, where I am, it's almost we're into a post secular phase. So Ireland, once again, hanging on, bringing up the rear uh, and that. There is, there is a post-secular discussion going on. I mean, you just look at the Islamist debate, Islamist violence. I mean, if you, if you aren't able to discuss abuse of religion um, for political purposes, um, you know, are, because you're so secular, so modern, um, you're actually not able to participate in one of the great debates of our time. So um, I, it'll be interesting to see where Ireland goes with this. I think the pandemic might have catalyzed everything again, just like the, the abuse scandals catalyzed everything in the 1990s. Uh, Derek Scally's book is called The Best Catholics in the World and it's published by Sadikov. Derek, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. And we'll be back on your feed very soon. But until then, remember you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, Slánagas Bánacht.